Now, what do you mean by that, Joseph's dying words? Well, Joseph died where? Egypt. What were the last words he gave to his son? Don't, don't bury me here. Don't leave my bones. But when you go back to the promised land, you take them with me. See, why was that? Well, all the patriarchs believed God's promise regarding the land. God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm going to give to your seed, Israel, this land, the land of Canaan. And in Genesis 15, he defined the boundaries. And in Genesis 17, he, uh, he uh, confirmed it once again. I'm going to give you this land to you and to your seed. Did Abram believe it? Yes, he did. But when he came to bury uh, Sarah, he bought a parcel of land and he put her body in that land. When he came to die, he, buried him, he was buried there. Rebecca died, she was buried there. And uh, Jacob died, he was uh, eventually buried there. Joseph said, take my bones back there. I want to be buried there also. Now, Genesis 22, 23, 24, we have three home seeds. And I'll leave you to study those. Genesis 23, we have a picture of true life, a picture of sorrow and of sadness. I got back from Nashville last, uh, well, Wednesday, and uh, really got back Thursday, Friday, got back to school, and learned Friday that one of our very good friends, the man who loved the school, loved the Lord, loved the school, and planted a good deal of shrubbery around the school, Mr. Floyd Taylor, lost his wife. And uh, I couldn't help but think of that when I was planning, studying this passage tonight. How common this experience of death is. Death, sorrow, sickness, and sadness belongs more to life than life and laughter and joy. Don't buy what this man was trying to sell the other day, Reverend Ike, that came into town. That's totally foreign to Christianity. This life is a veil of sadness and tears and sorrow. Now, that doesn't mean we're pessimists. That doesn't mean we go around with a long face. It does recognize the principle that God has, has not promised us happiness uh, without a mixture of sadness and sorrow. This life is, what did God say to Adam? You're going to rest from the ground your livelihood. You're going to, in the sweat of your brow, you're going to plant, and the ground is going to be cursed for your sake. For your sake. To remind you that you're but a pilgrim here. You're going to have to rest your livelihood from this ground. The last great discipline in life is death. Now, let's look at this. Genesis chapter 23, let's read the first two verses. Here in Genesis 23, we have the, uh, the death and burial of Sarah. We read in Genesis 23, verses 1 and 2. And Sarah was um, how old? 127 years old when she died. These are the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, which is another name from Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Hebron is south of Jerusalem. And uh, Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, the same as Hebron. Now, in Genesis chapter 22, uh, Abraham is living at Beersheba. Now he's moved back to Hebron. And there, Sarah dies in Hebron. And Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, the same as Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abram came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Abram moved back to Hebron from Beersheba, and here Sarah died. Now, Sarah, 127 years old when she died. That means how old is Abraham when she died? 
137, 137, because uh, Abraham was 10 years older than Sarah. How old was Isaac when Sarah died? 37 years old, because she was 90 when he was born. He died 127. That means that she was 37. Uh, Isaac was 37. Isaac was 37 when his mother died. Now, if you got your finger there, turn over to Genesis 25, verse 19 and 20. Genesis 25, verse 19 and 20. These are the generations of Isaac, Abram's son. Abram begot Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he, 40 years old when he got married. See, 40 years old. How old was Sarah when, how old was Isaac when Sarah died? 37, so three years later, um, Isaac was married. That means that Sarah never did see um, Isaac's wife. And uh, Jacob is uh, 137 when he lost his wife. It was a great blow to Abraham. The first time, the first mention of a man crying in the Bible is right here. Verse 23, the end of it. Abram came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. This is the first mention of weeping in the Bible. The first mention of weeping in the Bible, right here. Had Abraham wept? Did, Abra did Abraham weep when he was asked to leave her of the Chaldees? No. Did he weep when he had to separate himself from Lot? No. Did he weep when he had to cast out Ishmael? No. Did he weep? When God asked him to sacrifice Isaac, no. But he wept here. And as old F.B. Meyer pointed out, there's a difference between doing the will of God and suffering the will of God. May I say that again? F.B. Meyer said it. There's a difference between doing the will of God and suffering the will of God. When he left earth, he did the will of God. Cast out, separate from Lot, did the will of God. Cast out Ishmael, did the will of God. Offered Isaac, he did the will of God. But here, when God took his wife, wife for many, many years, he suffered the will of God. And Abraham wept because of that. Then the second thing we have here is the purchase of the cave of Machpelah, verses 3 to 18. Let's read it quickly. Abram rose up, uh, Genesis 23, verse 3. And Abram stood up from before his dead. He spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, He's living among these men, and he said, I am a stranger and a sojourner with you. Give me a possession of a burying place with you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the children of Heth answered Abram, saying unto him, Hear us, my lord, thou art a mighty prince among us. And the choice of our sepulchres bury thy dead. None of us shall withhold from thee this, his sepulchre, but that thou mayest bury thy dead. That is, we'll, we'll give you one. We'll give you a sepulcher. That is the side of a cave where you can put your wife, Sarah. We'll give it to you. Abram said, no. Verse 7, Abram stood up and bowed himself to people, land even the children of the house. See, they're very courteous in all this. And he spoke to them, saying, if it be your mind that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me to Ephron, the son of Zohar, who owns this property, that he may give me the cave of Mac. That's what I want, the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is in the end of his field. And when Abram said, give it to me, he didn't mean give it without any cost. 
He meant sell it to me. For as much as money is worth, he shall give it me. See, for as much money as it's worth, he shall give it, sell it me, for possession of a burying place among you. I don't want you simply to give it to me. I want to buy this whole acreage with that cave. And Ephraim dwelt among the children of Heth, and Ephraim the Hittite answered Abram, the hearing of the children of Heth, eat them all that went at the gate of the city, saith, Nay, my Lord, hear me. The field, I'll give thee. And the cave in the field that's therein, I'll give it thee. In the presence of the sons of my people, I'll give it thee. Bury your dead there. And Abram bowed himself down before the people of the land. And, you know, that's not quite as generous the way Ephraim puts that, as you'll see. Spoke of Ephraim the land, hearing the land, uh, because remember, this is Abraham that's dealing here. And Abraham is dealing here. And he's dealing pretty well. So is Ephraim. He's spoken Ephraim hearing the people of the land saying, But if thou give it, I pray to hear me. I'll give thee money for the field. Take it of me, and I'll bury my dead there. And Ephraim answered Abram, saying unto him, My Lord, hearken to me. Hearken to me. The land is it's only worth 400 shekels of silver. Uh, you see, he, we, he happened to drop the, the price. <laughs> That's what it's worth, 400 shekels of silver, which, by the way, was a real high price for that parcel of land. 400 shekels. What is that between me and you? Bury thy dead. I'll give it to thee. Of course, he didn't mean that. And Abram hearkened and Ephraim, Abram waited, Ephraim the silver. He didn't even barter with it. He wanted it. And Abraham was rich, so he paid it. And Abram hearkened Ephraim, and Abram weighed Ephraim the silver, which he had named, the hearing the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, current money with the merchant. And the field of Ephraim, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field, the cave, which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field that were in all the borders round about, were made sure unto Abraham, for possession, the presence of children have of all that went in at the gate of the city. So Abraham bought the land, the acreage around it, and the cave of Machpelah for a burying place for um, Sarah. And I'm oppressed, my friend, with the, um, the integrity and the business-like manner with which Abraham handled all his business deals. From the time he came back from that war, and the king of Sodom said, I'll give you everything, and... Abraham said, it won't take a penny. won't even take a shoelace from you. won't take anything. I don't want to be in your debt. And all down the line, whenever Abraham is involved in business, it's clean cut. It's business-like. He handles it uh, in a business-like way, and he handles it in a matter of integrity. And therefore, he was respected. When he had that argument over the well, he handled that in a business-like way. And... and uh, Abraham is a good example to us in this respect. He didn't want to take anything for nothing. And he wouldn't be in debt to any man. And he handled his business affairs with dispatch and integrity. And uh, he's a good example to us in that manner. And then he buries Sarah, verses 19 and 20. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre the same as Hebron in the land of Canaan. And the field and the cave that's in it were made sure unto Abraham for a possession of a burying place by the sons of Heth. Genesis 23, verse 2, we have the first weeping in the Bible. And in Genesis chapter 23, verse 19 and 20, 
we have the first grave in the Bible. And Abraham buried Sarah and buried her carefully because Abraham, though it's not stated explicitly, buried belief in the resurrection of the body. It's interesting. It's interesting. I'll touch on that in just a minute. But it's interesting to see that in the Old Testament, it, always, with no exception, they buried the dead. Abraham buried um, Sarah here. Genesis chapter 25. Will you look at it? Genesis chapter 25, verse 9. Abraham died. Abraham died. Where is Abraham buried? In the cave of what? Machpelah, the same place, the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, which is before Mamre. The very field he bought with Sarah, in that very cave uh, Abram also buried. Look at Genesis 49, 31. Genesis 49, 31. Thirty, Genesis 49, verse 30. Well, go back to verse 28. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. Verse 29, he charged them send them. Uh, I am to be gathered unto my... This is Jacob now. This is Jacob. Jacob says, I am to gather my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that's in the field of Ephraim the Hittite, in the cave that's in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham, see, when Jacob says this, he's down in Egypt now. He's down in Egypt. But he says, don't bury me down in Egypt. Don't bury me there. Take me back yonder to Canaan. Bury me in the cave of Machpelah. In the cave that's in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, the land of Canaan, which Abraham brought the field of Ephraim, the Hittite for possession of a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah's wife. And there they buried who else? Isaac, Rebecca, his wife, and there I buried Leah. Genesis chapter 50, verse 13. Verse sons carried him when they're down in Egypt, and Jacob died. Jacob died. And uh, they had a long W-A-K-E for Jacob down the land of Egypt, a long wait. When that was all over, they took Jacob's body and carried it back up yonder to Canaan. When you come to verse 12, and his sons did unto, unto Jacob according as Jacob had commanded them. For his sons carried Jacob's body in the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah, which Abram brought the field for possession of the burying place of Ephraim, the Hittite before Mamre. Look at Genesis 25, 50, verse 25. Joseph's old, he's ready to die. Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, take you out of Egypt, bring you back to Canaan. And when he does, you shall carry up what? My bones. And Joseph, being 110 years old, he embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. When they went back, they took his bones. Now, where do you think it doesn't say, or where do you think they buried him? The cave of Machpelah, see? Now, what does that tell us? What does that tell us? Well, may I say, uh, today a mosque is built over this place today. What does that tell us? Tells us uh, that um, um, suggests two things. Now, I want to look at three lessons. It suggests two things. 
first of all, suggests by the way they carefully buried the body that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph all believed in the resurrection of the body. The resurrection of the body is a cardinal tenet of the Christian faith. Now, the Greeks and the Romans didn't believe it. They believed in the immortality of the soul, but not the resurrection of the body, because the Greeks believed that the seed of evil and sin is in the body. The Bible doesn't believe that. The Bible doesn't teach that. The seed of sin is not in the body, but in the soul. So when the body dies and goes to the grave, the soul goes to Hades of an unconverted man, that soul is sinful. The seed of sin is not in the body, it's in the soul. Now, the Greeks believed that the seed of sin was in the body. And if I could get rid of the body, I would get rid of sin. That's not true. Unfortunately, that idea has infected a good deal of Christian theology. And back of all the monastic movements in early church history and all through the Middle Ages and up until the present time, behind all the monastic movements, the monasteries and the nunneries, back of all these is the idea that sin, the seat of sin, is in the body, not in the soul. That's Greek theology, not biblical theology. Since the seed of sins in the body, and the body's essentially sinful, the greatest thing that happens to it would be released from the body. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches the resurrection of the body. And Abraham affirmed his faith in the resurrection of the body, buried. And Joseph affirmed his faith in the resurrection of the body, buried. Don't cremate me, bury me. Jacob affirmed his faith in the resurrection of the body, bury me, bury me. Well, at the same time, they also affirmed their faith in the promise of God. I'm going to give you this land. So don't bury me down in Egypt. Don't bury me over yonder in Babylon. Bury me in this land. So when God raises me, I won't have to walk very far. See here. Bury me right here in this land. This is the land. And, and all the, the patriarchs affirmed their faith in God's promise to land by being buried there. Also, uh, may I suggest that, um, that in studying the burial of these men and the burial all through the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, that it affirms the biblical position, I believe, of burying rather than cremating. I'm often asked about this. Is it proper to cremate? Well, there might be some uh, situations where uh, cremation is necessary might be that a plague had swept over a culture and bodies of people are infested with disease. They might have to cremate them. But in the Old Testament, although Israel was surrounded by nations that burned bodies, they always buried the bodies. And the New Testament, although there were cultures around Christianity that cremated, they buried the bodies. And you find today in our culture, the atheists, Last his body to be cremated and the ashes sprinkled out on the sea. By doing so, uh, mock God and resurrection. For Christians normally bury the dead. They do so in the hope of the resurrection. And so Abraham buried. Now, what lessons do we learn here? What lessons do we learn? May I suggest three of them? Do I suggest those in that outline? 
Is that right? Soaring love, faithful service, and blessed hope. Soaring love. That ought to be soaring L-O-S-S, not L-O-V-E. Sorrowing love, L-O-S-S. Abraham lost his wife. When he lost his wife, what did he do? He wept. He wept. Sorrow is natural, the loss of a loved one. Abraham wept. It would be unnatural not to weep. The Bible never says, don't weep the death of a lost loved one. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, you want to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which fall asleep, that you sorrow not, comma, as others who have no hope. He didn't say you sorrow not, period. But he said, sorrow not, comma, even as others who have no hope. Does a Christian sorrow when he loses a loved one? Yeah. The abnormal is he didn't. And, and I've been at enough funerals and have gone to people who've lost loved ones. It's a good thing when a person does break up and cry. That lets out those emotions. Because if they don't, they bottle it up inside. It's going to come out sooner or later. The better, sooner it comes out, the better. And it's normal to cry. And normal to feel very keenly the loss of a loved one. But that loss is um, surrounded by hope and impregnated by hope because we believe that if, if Jesus died and rose again, as the Bible says, even though so them who sleep in Jesus will God bring with Jesus when he comes. And there's a hope to ours. Then notice, secondly, faithful service. What do I mean by that? Well, when Sarah died, you know what Abraham did? He didn't sit around and mourn the loss of his wife. Can I say this tenderly and diplomatically, tactfully? Abraham didn't, saw, didn't sit around and mourn the loss of his wife and indulge in self-pity. He wept. He cried for the loss of his wife. But then he got busy. Work. And work is the best antidote to sorrow in these kind of circumstances. And Abraham got busy, got the field, Got her buried, went on his business. He felt her loss keenly, but he got involved in work and service. And the best antidote to sorrow and loss is work and service. And then notice third, blessed hope. Abraham buried Sarah in hope. And that is what upheld Abraham. Will you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12? Hebrews chapter 12. We have the New Testament commentary on this. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, verse 12. Therefore sprang there even of one, and, many, and him as good as dead, as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. What promises? The land, right, the land. They hadn't received it. They hadn't received it. But having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced those promises and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth and said, when I die, bring my body back to this land and bury me here. 
They embrace it, believe it. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. Back to Genesis 23. Blessed hope. That's what upheld Abraham. Now let's go on to Genesis chapter 24. Genesis chapter 24. Now I suggest uh, in moving from 23 to 24 that you're here tonight and you have lost recently a loved one. Some of the ladies here have lost their husband or some of the husbands here have lost their wives. Now I suggest to you that you read through carefully once again and prayerfully uh, Genesis chapter 23. Here was a great man of God who dearly loved his wife. Dearly loved his wife. He lost her. You know, I, I don't suppose there's anything as sad as to see a man who's lost his wife. A woman can lose her husband and bear up under it better than a man, often than a man that can lose his wife. I'd say that the balance is that way. I'd say that the woman is able better to lose her husband and to respond to it, to sorrow, and then to, uh, to respond to it and to get back and get active and serve, more so than a man. Now, why that is, I don't know. But it's my observation that that's true. Here's the man. How old? 137. Lived with her longer than any of us could live with our wives or husbands. Lived with her long, long, long time. One day God took her. And Genesis 23 tells us how Abraham met that great sorrow and loss in his life, faced it, took care of her body, buried her, picked up the pieces, one about living a fruitful life until God called him home. Beautiful chapter. May I suggest it, recommend it to your careful and prayerful study. All right, now we come to Genesis 24. How many verses in Genesis 24? Huh? 67. All right, now do you think we'll get through? Well, we will. We'll get through. We won't be able to read it all. Now here's the next great crisis the next great crisis in the life of Isaac. First great crisis in the life of Isaac was his birth. Second great crisis was the conflict with Ishmael. What was the third great crisis in Isaac's life? Sacrifice. Now here's the fourth crisis. Marriage. Forty years of age. <laughs> He'd say, man, he's too old to get married. Forty years of age. Well, you notice that... Um, that uh, uh, most of these men married when they were a little more mature, and their marriages tended to last, too. And they waited a little longer. Here's the marriage of Isaac. The marriage, now, the marriage custom in those days were different from now. The marriage in those days was contracted in this fashion in the East, and it somewhat still is, and there was wisdom behind it. The point is that the parents were involved in the decision. Rebecca was involved, but the parents were also involved. And um, uh, here is the marriage of Isaac. Abraham gives explicit instructions. Now, let's look at the story quickly. Then I want to draw some lessons. I got about four or five lessons, but I hope I'll have time just to cover two of them. We got about four things in this chapter. The first one is the commission of Abraham. Abram sends a servant to secure a bride for Isaac. Let's read that quickly. Begin it 
chapter 24, verse 1. How would Abraham be now? How would Abraham be? 140, right. He was 137 when Sarah died, and Isaac was 37. How old was Isaac when he got married? 40. So you add three years on, to I, on to Abraham's age when Sarah died, you get 140. So Abraham was old, well stricken in age. And he's not living in the past, and he's not living only in the present. He's making provision for the future very wisely, kind of like going to a lawyer and drawing up the will so you don't die intestate. He's looking at the future. God promised that son, and through him, that son Isaac a seed. So Abraham's going to uh, help that in the right way, help that promise to be fulfilled. So, chapter 24, verse 1, Abram's old and well stricken in age. What do you think is the one final thing Abraham wants to do before he dies? Make sure that Isaac is married. Make sure that Isaac's married. So the Lord had blessed Abram in all things. And Abram said to his eldest servant, a steward, the eldest servant, whose name is never given to us, an unnamed servant. And a beautiful picture of, of I read this over and I couldn't help but think, you know, that the average man, woman, layman, or preacher, laywoman, uh, layman, preacher of the gospel, the average one has gone down unsung and unnoticed history. For every D.L. Moody and Martin Luther and uh, John Wesley and Billy Graham, for every one of those, there are 10,000 men, women who serve the Lord, serve him faithfully, who never come to the notice of anybody. And I thought to myself, as I read this, we never know the name of this servant. His name's not given. He's the unnamed servant. But God remembers him, see? Just like God remembers that cup of cold water. And that lady whom you helped in her saw of distress. That young boy you helped in saw of distress. Nobody else saw it, but God did, see? And God knew the name of this unnamed servant. I don't. Nobody does. Abram said to his eldest servant of hell, that ruled over all that he had, was this Eliezer? Probably was. Genesis 15, Eliezer. He said, Put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh. Way of taking an oath, a serious oath. And I'll make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of the earth, thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. Don't take a pagan wife. Don't be unequally yoked together. Don't take a pagan wife. But thou shalt go unto my country and my kindred Take a wife unto my son Isaac. Servant said to him, Well, supposing the woman will not be willing to come with me to this land, must I needs bring your son back up to Haran, way up north, from where thou camest? And Abram said, No, no. Beware that thou bring not my son there again. Don't take him a pagan wife, and don't take him back up to Haran. Here's the land of promise. The Lord God of heaven who took me from my father's house and the land of my kindred, who spoke unto me and who sworn to me, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land, this land. He shall send his angel before thee, 
and thou shalt take a wife unto my son from there. And if the woman will not be willing to follow thee, then you'll be clear from this my oath. Only don't take my son back up north to heaven. And the servant put his high hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning the matter. And so we move to the second thing in this chapter. The guidance of God. Guide, God, God guides this servant to find Rebekah. Now let's read it. The servant took ten camels of the camels of his master and departed. For all the goods of his master were in his, in his hand. That is, Abraham trusted this steward, put everything he had in the hand of the steward, to go up and to, to get a wife. How much Abraham trusted this man, see? The most solemn, important thing in Abraham's life, he entrusted to this faithful servant. Gave him money to go up there and to get a wife for his son Isaac. All the goods of his master were in his hand. So the servant rose and went to Mesopotamia, unto the city of Nahor. And he made his camels to kneel down outside the city by a well of water at the time of the evening, even the time that women go out to draw water. Remember in John chapter 4, that woman beside the well was out there at what time of the day? Noontime, not at evening. See, all the women went out there in early morning or late at night. But she was a woman of the street. And the women made fun of her, taunted her. So she went out there at a time when nobody else would be around so she wouldn't have to suffer the taunts of the other women of the city of Samaria. She went out at noontime, but no one was there. So he got there at night in the evening, just before the sun was setting. And he came to that well, and he prayed. And he said, verse 12, O Lord God of my master Abram, I pray thee, send me good speed this day. Show kindness unto my master Abram. Behold, I stand here by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city come out to draw water. Now, he's going to give the Lord, a, and I think a proper way, a kind of a test, a guarantee, uh, to show him, give him guidance. Let it come to pass that the damsel whom I shall say, let down thy pitcher, I pray thee, Lord, that I may, I pray thee, that I may drink. And she shall say, drink, and I'll give your camels drink also. Now, Lord, let her be the one whom thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac. And thereby shall I know that thou hast shown kindness unto my master. Now that's asking God for a real concrete thing, isn't it? How would you like, gentlemen, to get a wife that way? <laughs> See, that's asking something very concrete. So that if God does it, the servant will know. That's the one. Well, God did it and did a second thing by which he could know it. Came to pass, verse 15, before he had even finished, praying. Remember what that verse says? About before you finish asking, I'll do it. Before you finish. That behold, Rebekah came out. He was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahum, Nahor, Abram's brother, with her pitcher upon her shoulder. And the damsel was very fair to look upon, a virgin. Neither had any man known her. And she went down to the well and filled her pitcher and came up. And the servant ran to meet her, that is, Abram's servant ran to meet her and said, Let me, I pray thee, drink a little water from thy pitcher. He doesn't even ask her to get any water from the animals, see, because if she gets it and offers to, then it'll be an indication that this is from God. If he'd say, How about feeding watering my animals? Then he would be putting his hand into the thing. 
But this way, it's going to be clear that it's from God. So, verse 18, she said, Drink, my Lord. She hastened, let down her pitcher upon her hand, gave him drink. Once she had finished giving him drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. And she hastened and emptied her pitcher in the trough and ran again to the well to draw water and drew for all his camels. And the servant dumbfounded, see, that God had answered prayer so concretely. The man, wondering her, held his peace to learn whether the Lord has made his journey prosperous or not. It came to pass that the camel had finished drinking. The man took a golden ring of half a shekel weight, two braces for a wrist, a ten shekel weight of gold, and said, Whose daughter is thou? Tell me, I pray thee, is there room in thy father's house for us to lodge in? And then here's the second thing that knocks him right off his feet. She said unto him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor, the relative of Abraham. And that clinched it. She said, Moreover unto him, we have both straw and fodder enough room to lodge in. And the man bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master, Abram, that not left destitute my master of his mercy and his truth. I being in the way, a great passage on guidance, I being in the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. The damsel ran, told them of her, of her mother's house these things. Now, Rebekah had a brother, and his name was Laban. Now, here's a, you know, this Laban is a real conniver, the schemer. And he looked at what the, the young lady brought back, those shekels of gold, and dollar signs began to dance before his eyes. So Laban ran out into the man of the well, and he came to pass when he saw the ring and braces upon his sister's wrist, and when he had heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, saying, Thus spake the man unto me. But Laban came on the double to the man. See? And behold, he stood by the camels at the well, and he said, Come in, thou blessed of the Lord. You know, some guys can really get pious when it gets to money. <laughs> and that's the way he looked. Come, thou blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand out here outside? Come on in, for I have prepared the house and room for the camels. The man came to the house and engirded his camels, gave straw and fodder to the camels, water washed his feet, men's feet were with him. There was set food before him to eat, but the servant said, I'm not going to eat. I've come here to do my master's will, and I'm not going to eat until I do it. I will not eat until I've told you mine errand. And Laban said, Speak on. And the man said, he puts it right out on the top, he doesn't beat around the bush, the servant comes right to the point. There's a beautiful transparency in this man. You know what I mean? You don't have to look for anything under the table. No duplicity. You remember what is said of Nathaniel? Jesus said of Nathaniel, there's a man in whom there is no guile. Transparent, no duplicity. So was this man. Transparent. Said, I'm Abram's servant. The Lord blessed the master greatly, he's become great, given him flocks, herds, silver, and gold, men servants, maid servants, camels, asses. Sarah, my master's wife, or son. My master made me swear, don't take a woman, Canaanite, to go up to my father's house to my kindred and take it. And then he recounts what his master Abram has said. Verse 43, Behold, I stand by the well of water. It's come to pass that when the virgin comes forth, draw water, I say to her, give me, I pray thee, a little water. When I pitch her to drink, she say to me, Both drink thou, and I'll draw for thy camels. 
Verse 45, And before I had finished praying my heart, behold, Rebecca came forth with a pitcher on her shoulder. She went down into the well, drew water. I said unto her, Let me drink, I pray thee. She made haste and let down her pitcher from her shoulder, said, Drink, I'll give your camels also to drink. Verse 47, I said to her, Whose daughter is thou? She said, The daughter of Bethuel. Verse 48, I bowed down my head and worshiped the Lord. Bless the Lord God of my master Abraham who led me in the right way. Who led me in the right way. Who led me how? The right way. See, whenever a man looks to God, counts on God, God's going to lead him in the right way. Especially if he doesn't try to connive. He leads it to God. Lead him in the right way. Led him in the right way. He said, Take my master's brother's daughter unto his son. Now, if you will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. In other words, what he's saying is, let's not hassle around here for four or five days. Let's settle this thing right now. I've come to do this. I've told you honestly what's on my heart. Now you tell me honestly. Let's not barter around here. Let's come right to a decision. I like this man. I like this unnamed servant. And so he says in verse, um, verse 49, You'll deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, well, tell me that also. Either way, that I may turn to the right hand to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing proceeds from whom? They sought, they recognized that. Here's the hand of God. Thing proceeds from the Lord. We cannot speak unto thee bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is for thee. Take her and go. Let it be thy master's son's wife, as the Lord has spoken. It came to pass that when Abram's servant heard their words, what did he do? He worshiped the Lord. He didn't go down to the, uh, the auditorium 10 days ago and think about building up your self-image. So he, he trusted in God to give him guidance. When God gave him guidance, he thanked God for that guidance. Worship the Lord bound himself to the earth. And the servant brought forth jewels of silver, jewels of gold, and uh, gave them to him. They did eat and drink, verse 54, the men were with him tarried all night, and he rose up in the morning and said, and the servant said, now look at this, send me away into my master. And her brother and her mother said, let the damsel abide with us a few days, at least ten. After that she shall go. But the servant said, no. We made a decision. We make a decision to go. Let's be with it. Let's go. Hinder me not, seeing the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, we will call Rebecca and inquire her mouth. This is lovely. See, the parents, the parents have made a decision in their mind, but they're going to get Rebecca involved. What is her response to this? They called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, what'd she say? I will go. I will go. I will go. So they sent Rebekah away, the sister nurse, and Abram's servant his men. They blessed Rebekah and said to her, Thou art our sister. Be thou the mother of thousands of millions. Let thy seed possess the gate of those who hate them. See, the servant told them about the promise, the Abrahamic covenant. So Rebekah rose and her damsel and rode upon the camels, followed the man. The servant took Rebekah, went home, went south home. And Isaac came from the way of the well, Lahavoy. For he dwelt in the southland, the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate the field at evening time. 
And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, the camels were coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she alighted from the camel. For she had said to the servant, Who is this man that walks in the field to meet us? And the servant had said, It's my master, your future husband. Therefore she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things he did done. And Isaac brought her into the tent, not into his mother Sarah's tent. Sarah's dead. The better text simply have Isaac brought her into the tent and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. What did she say at verse 58, the end of verse 58? What did she say? I will go. Like in a marriage ceremony, I will. I will go. What was Isaac's response in verse 67? He loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Well, here's a beautiful story. And um, I'd like to suggest two or three lessons from this story. Um, like um, I at the time, I'd like to take each one of these. Abraham, look at what this story tells us about Abraham, but I cannot. I'd like to take this story and look at what it tells us about Isaac, but I cannot. You know, Isaac stands out, uh, ladies. Isaac stands out uh, above his father and his son as a married man. Uh, Isaac loved his wife dearly. Isaac was one of the few monogamous, one wife in the Bible. Abraham was a polygamist, as great as he was. Jacob was a polygamist, as great as he was. Moses, David. Isaac loved but one woman, was faithful to her all of his life. He loved her, loved her dearly, from the very beginning. And, uh, you know, Isaac, uh, was, I remember reading Griffith Thomas, I think it was Griffith Thomas, one time who said that Isaac was the, how was that? The unheralded, that's not the word, was the little-known son of a famous father and the little-known father of a famous son. Abraham stood out, didn't he? And Jacob stood out. But Isaac was back in the shadow. But he, the one quality that stand, two or three qualities stand out in Isaac. One is obedience to his father. He loved his parents and he obeyed his parents. And the other thing that stands out about Isaac is his commitment and his love to his wife through all of his life. These two things stand out in Isaac's life. Then I'd like to talk about Rebecca, about her courtesy and her tact, her industry, her industry. She worked, she got the cow, got the water, her industry, and uh, her native beauty. And then I'd like to talk really about the unnamed servant. That'd be a study in itself. And many men in their books will take the unnamed servant and make him a type of the Holy Spirit. And there's a beautiful study there. The church, uh, the, the, Rebecca, Isaac is a type of Christ. Are you listening? Isaac's a type of Christ. Rebecca's a type of the church. The unnamed servant is a type of the Holy Spirit. See? 
Isaac is not seen, so Jesus is in heaven, not seen. The servant goes to a foreign land, as the Holy Spirit comes to this foreign land, and secures a bride. As Isaac, as the unnamed servant secured a bride for Isaac, so the Holy Spirit secures a bride for God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Beautiful type there. I suggest your study. I don't want to look at that. I want to look at two things. I want to look at two things in conclusion. First of all, this gives us some lessons on guidance. Here's a great chapter on the guidance of God. And may I suggest five principles in the guidance of God? Uh, you know, I, I suppose that one of the four or five subjects of perennial interest in we are working with young people is this. How can I find God's will for my life? How can I find the will of God for my life? How can I find God's guidance? Well, here, here are some lessons in God's guidance. They're not all here. But there are four or five basic principles here. What are these lessons in the guidance of God, may I suggest? Well, number one, number one, the guidance of God is within the orbit, O-R-B-I-T, of God's will. Now, let me explain that. The guidance of God, you may want to write that down. The guidance of God is within the orbit of God's will. Or, shall I say another way, the guidance of God is in perfect harmony with God's revealed will. That might be better. The guidance of God is always in perfect harmony with God's revealed will. Now, what was God's revealed will here? Genesis chapter 24, verse 2. And always in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 24, verse 3. What is God's will? Genesis 24, 3. Don't take a son where? Of the pagan Canaanites. Don't take a son of the pagan Canaanites. And the guidance of God all through Genesis chapter 24 is within. That was one, one basic principle, one basic rule of God's will. Don't take a wife out of the pagan Canaanites. I put it this way. The will of God outside the Bible will never contradict the will of God inside the Bible. The will of God outside the Bible will never contradict the will of God inside the Bible. So when a fellow comes to me who's a Christian and says that God is leading him to marry an unsaved girl, I say that can't be. See? That can't be. Because the will of God outside the Bible never contradict the will of God inside the Bible. Uh, if a boy comes and says, well, you know, uh, I don't want to get to a personal thing here, but, um, well, I don't mind doing it. I've talked to both of my boys, all my boys about this. We have kind of an understanding. The boys get through college before they get married. And I say, now, you know, you may run off at the end of your first year in college and get married. You may do that. You may have a very wonderful, prosperous marriage. But don't come back and say it's the will of God. Can't be. Can't be. Till you take your feet from out under your dad's table, then you're subject to his authority. What does the Bible say? Children, that's the will of God. 
So whatever it may be, don't come back and say it's the will of God. That'd be an affront to God. The will of God outside the Bible never contradicts the will of God inside the Bible. And what does it say about marriage? When you look at it, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, by the way, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which is the great, one of the great chapters in the Bible on marriage, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And some of the men here come on Friday morning, and you know we spent three Friday morning sessions on this. And he lays down some principles. Now, what is the principle he lays down in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the next to the last verse? 1 Corinthians 7, 39. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband be dead, she's at liberty to be married again. If her husband dies, she's at liberty to marry again. To whom she will, what are the last four words? Only marry a Christian. See? An untold tragedy has come from the violation of that principle. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Don't be unequally yoked together. And there's a basic rule, a principle in the Bible, and I've spoken on this over the radio two or three times. And that is simply this, the will of God outside the Bible never contradicts the will of God inside the Bible. My friend, that's taught again and again and again and again in the Bible. I'll give you two illustrations. One of them is in 1 Kings chapter 13. 1 Kings chapter 13, an unnamed prophet is sent by God up north to Samaria to denounce Jeroboam and the idolatry which he's introduced into the northern kingdom. God says to the prophet, go up there and preach against that. So this unnamed prophet goes up there fearlessly, courageously. He preaches against that thing and against Jeroboam, and he denounces Jeroboam for his idolatry. And Jeroboam sticks out his arm. I'd like to have been there to see this. Jeroboam sticks out his arm, which teaches never point. <laughs> Jeroboam sticks out his arm and points at that unnamed prophet and says, take him, bind him. And when he stuck his arm out and said that, his arm turned to leprosy. And it scared the wits out of Jeroboam. And he ends up, you read the story, he ends up, he says, pray for me. Pray for me. Boy, pray for him. This is terrible. Pray for me, and I'll let you go. Pray for me. He prayed for him, and Jeroboam was healed. So God said to the unnamed prophet, go back to Jerusalem. Don't turn to the left or don't to the right. Turn to the right. Don't stop. Head right back to Samaria, Jerusalem. Don't turn to the right. Don't turn to the left. Don't stop. Go right back. So he started back. Remember what happened? About halfway back, an old retired reprobate preacher, prophet, came out, said to him, where are you going? told him. He said, uh, come on with me, have dinner and stay the night. And the unnamed prophet said, no, I can't. God told me, don't stop anywhere. The prophet said, God spoke to me a little later, gave me some updated information. He said, come with me which means don't get the will of God through somebody else. See? They may help you, but you get it from the Lord. Come on down. The Lord told me. 
Lord told me. How could he? What was the will of God? Don't stop. That's the revealed will of God, see. Well, he listened. Went on down there, had dinner with him, spent the night, got up. A named prophet, the old reprobate prophet, who had a conscience about this thing, said, listen, he disobeyed God. Got up and left, and on the way, you know what happened? The lion, God sent, God sent the lion out to destroy the children. The old reprobate prophet went out there and got his son, so he took the man of God, wept over him, and buried him. What had he done? Violated the principle of basic rights. The will of God outside the Bible will never contradict the will of God inside the Bible. See? The will of God outside the Bible. What did God, what did Abram say to his servant? What did God say? Don't take pagan wives. To that. The will of God outside the Bible never contradict the will of God inside the Bible. You know another illustration? Can't give it. You read 1 Samuel 12 to 15. You read the life of Saul. Saul violated it twice. Twice. Second thing I find, second thing about finding the will of God is prayer. Prayer. Genesis chapter 24, 12 to 14. When he wanted to find the right wife for his uh, master's son, he prayed about it. Prayed about it. Made it a matter of prayer. Specific, earnest, believing prayer. Third, third thing that helped him in this matter of guidance was providential circumstances. Providential circumstances. He asked God, give me. Lord, he said, I'm simple. Uh, I need help. You see to it when this young lady comes and when I ask her to give me some water, she'll not only give me water, but she'll get water from a camel. I asked you for that, Lord. You prayed. What did God do? Number one, the young lady gave him water. Number two, without asking, gave the camels water. Number three, when he asked her who she is, she said, I'm the daughter of Bethuel. Providential circumstances. I believe in those. I came to Memphis. I came to Memphis. Because of some providential circumstances. I was very sick. The do and, and Dr. Goddard, the previous president to me, had been writing me for two or three years about coming here, and I was very, uh, really sick, critically sick. And um, I wrote him and said, I, I'm not doing any better in Southern California, so I'm going to come here. And within about five days, the Lord assuaged that sickness and gave me strength and health. Dealt with that thing. Now, you know, I don't believe in divine healers. I believe if God wants to heal a man, he's capable, he's sovereign. Most cases, he doesn't. This case, he did. What was that? It's a confirmation to me. Circumstances. And I believe that circumstances, providential circumstances, can confirm it in the guidance of God. Providential circumstances. And then a fourth principle, action, action. In finding God's will, we must act. We can't ambivalate. When God shows us what to do, then what does he expect us to do? Do it. What did Mary say in John 2, 5? Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Don't think about it. Don't rationalize. Don't sit on it. Do it. One of the servants, he went up there. He, he talked to the, the daughter. And then he talked. He came right out, bold and blunt. 
My servant sent me out, my master sent me a wife or a son. When they said she'd go, he said, we don't want to fool around here. Let's go right tomorrow. He acted, acted decisively. And my friend, you know, indecision and ambivalence you know, hurt a man in, in, in finding and doing the will of God. One acts decisively. One other principle. One step at a time. Look at chapter 24, verse 27. What did he say in 24, 27? And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abram, who has not left destitute my master of his mercy and his truth. I being where? The Lord did what? Led me. I being in the way the Lord led me. Verse 27. Now, when you look up here, see what he's saying is, God gave me light for this step. I took this step. Gave me light for the next step. Took this step. Give me life for the next step. I took this step. That's a basic principle in the guidance of God. God's not going to show me the blueprint all the way down the line. He's going to show me the next step. And I take that, and he shows me the next step. Take that, show me the next step. And I speak to students here about that. God's not going to show you your whole ministry ahead. But if he's brought you here, then God expects you to be here and to do the best of your ability by the grace of God what he's called you to do here. You do that, God will show you the next step. See? You're responsible not for five steps down the line, but for this right here. You do this one, and God will show you the next one. I remember reading a story, uh, uh, reading a sermon by Dr. Will Anderson. He was the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Dallas, Texas, years and years ago, and a very close personal friend of Dr. Chaper in the president of Dallas Center. Dr. Anderson was... Uh, talking about how to find the will of God. One of the best messages I ever read on how to find the will of God is this one. And he, said, and he was talking about this principle right here, one step at a time, one step at a time. He said, I had an elder in the church, and he was up in years. When he was a boy, so I suppose this go around about 1885, 1890, 1895, right around there. He said, this man, this elder, grew up in northwest Arkansas. His daddy owned several mules owned a farm, several mules. And he said, one day, one of my daddy's mules got lost, and it was lost for weeks. And one day we got word that that mule was down south east of Little Rock, 150, 125, 150 miles from where we lived. All of that. My daddy said to me, 11 years old, son, I want you to go down there, get that mule, bring it back home. Dr. Anderson asked just what I would have asked. Uh, would you ask your son to do that today? And, and the man said, no. <laughs> but he said, my daddy asked me to do that. I was 11 years old. I said to him, daddy, how do I get down there? But he said, I'm not going to tell you how to get down there. He said, I'm going to tell you how to get to the next city, the next town on the way. And when you get down the next town about 13 miles, you find out so-and-so or so-and-so and ask them the next town. So I went down, asked Found the man, asked him how to get down there. He told me, went to the next city. He told me how to get the next city or town. I asked, found a man there, and he told me to get the next town and the next town and the next town and the next town. And finally, I got down to that town where my daddy's mule was. They brought the mule back. See? My friend, that's the way it is with the will of God. One step at a time, see? God, I, the student comes here. 
excited about, you know, what am I going to do 10 years? Don't worry about that. God brought you here, gave you five courses of study, then the will of God for you is to do your dead level best by the grace of God. Dead level best. Active in Christian service. Doing your studies. Witnessing for Christ. Developing spiritually. And when you do that this year, next year, junior year and senior year, when you get there, then God will show you the next step. You don't have to worry about that. One step at a time. How did Jesus say it? John 7, 17. If any man wants to know, if any man wants to do his will, he shall know the doctrine of God. One step at a time. Let me close then by a couple of lessons on marriage or finding a mate. Here's one of the greatest Old Testament passages. And let me give them to you very quickly. And I meant to save myself some time. Didn't. So let me give them quickly. I learned some lessons on finding a mate in life. I learned some lessons here upon marriage. Some lessons that I can sit down with my children and talk to them about. What's the first lesson I learned? Genesis 24, verse 3. What's the first one? Right. Marry within the faith. Don't get a pagan for my son. Get someone who's of the same kin. Marry within the faith. 1 Corinthians 7, 39. Marry in the Lord. 2 Corinthians 6, 19, don't be unequally yoked together. Marry a believer. Now, someone will say, well, you know, how are you going to get them to marry a believer? Well, I'd suggest two things. Don't talk to them when they're 17. Talk to them when they're 10. Talk to them when they're 9 and 10 and 11 about this thing. Have it as a principle. That's it. Secondly, the best way not to marry an unbeliever is don't date an unbeliever. That's the way you want to stop it. See? Now, that doesn't mean that a fella could be out in a blind date sometime, you know, at a party, and take a, an unsaved girl home. I'm not thinking about that. What I'm thinking about is dating her consistently because, you know, the heart is much stronger than the conscience. And a fellow starts dating an unsaved girl and dating an unsaved girl and dating the same girl and dating her, you know what he's going to do, don't you? He's going to fall in love with her. And when he falls in love with her, I'll tell you when it comes to the matters of the heart, we are all expert rationalists. And he'll rationalize all the way around the globe to find a way that he can marry an unsaved girl or a saved girl can marry an unsaved boy. And the place to start it is when 9 and 10, 11. And the place to stop it is when date. That is simply to have a principle that as a Christian, you date someone was a professing Christian. And that'll stop about 80% of it right there. Marry within the faith. Well, someone says, well, that may mean that I have to cut off a relationship. Be un- Instead of marrying him, be unmarried. It may be. Maybe. That's part of the Christian life. It costs. But you'll never succeed, my friend, and our children will never succeed in violating a clear, express command of the Word of God. And that's clear. Don't marry an unbeliever. Second, parents should be involved. 
Genesis 24 teaches us anything, it teaches that parents should be involved in that decision. Now, obviously, in the Old Testament culture, the parents chose, although Rebecca was allowed to make the final decision. But they're both true here. The parents were involved in the choice of the young lady or the choice of the young man, and Rebecca was involved in the decision. You know, in our last missionary conference, one of the missionaries, who was a missionary in Africa, was telling us about how they chose a mate in that African culture. And when he got through, I couldn't help but think, how much wiser that method was than the hop, skip, and jump method we have today. The bride-to-be had to go and spend some time with the in-laws-to-be. And the young man had to spend some time with his in-laws-to-be. And they got to know one another. And they got the approval of their parents on both sides. Because when you're marrying, you know, you're not only marrying the bride, you're getting involved with another family. The parents ought to be involved in the decision. And that happens very seldom today. And that may be why we got so many marriages that end up on the rocks. Because, you know, mothers and daddies, whether we like it or not, and I'm speaking mostly to mothers and daddies, but they have a perception. Love tends to be blind. And mothers and daddies uh, who are intelligent and prayerful have a perception. You remember what he said, Genesis 2.18? I will give you a helper. What's that next word? Help neat. Neat means suitable. And the helper ought to be emotionally emotionally and spiritually the complement to the person with whom we are married. And a mother and a father can often see that much clearer than the boy that's involved in the engagement. And I think the principle is still true that um, the parents ought to be involved in that decision. And I think it's a wise son that gets his mother, see, probably his mother more than his dad. I think it's a wise son that brings his girlfriend home and asks his mother what she thinks. He gets his mother involved. Third thing, third thing in finding a mate. What did the unnamed servant do on three occasions? What did he do? Pray. And I think it's a good thing when a fellow and a girl are going together and thinking about marriage that they pray together. Pray together. And you know what they ought to pray? What if I may say we prayed when we were going together is that if God didn't want it, he'd break it up, see? Ask God to break it up. Ask God. I don't need to ha ask him to weld it together because my human emotions are going to do that. Ask him if it's not wise, not within his will, to bring something along that will break it up because it's a lot better to know now. The old Russians used to say, you better measure your cloth nine times. You can only cut it once. It's better to know it before. Then the fourth thing, that'll sink in about 10 minutes. We'll, we'll be gone by the time it sinks in. What's the fourth thing here? Now listen, what's the fourth thing in selecting me? Providential guidance. The meeting at the well, the answer to prayer, Bethuel's daughter, the responsiveness of the parents, 
the responsiveness of Rebecca, providential guidance. Now, people can read providence exactly opposite. That's unfortunate, but they can. So we have to be earnest in this matter. But I think providential guidance is involved. Fifth, let God make the choice. Get the Lord involved. The unnamed servant asked God, prayed for God, to directly lead him to the wife for his masters. He got God involved. Genesis 2.18, remember what he said? Not good for the man to live alone. What's the next three words? I will make. And the marriage that sticks is going to be the marriage that's prefaced by that. I will make for him helper suitable let the lord make the choice and finally sixth one there was wholehearted response on both parts wholehearted response on both parts what was the response of rebecca when they called her in what did rebecca say i will wholehearted response and when rebecca came down there and isaac saw her it was kind of love at first sight wasn't it <laughs> he loved her Loved her immediately and loved her deeply. He took her in his home, lived with one woman all the rest of his life. Why? Well, is it because, um, is it possible that Isaac's marriage stands out in the Old Testament because above anybody else in the Old Testament, Isaac allowed the Lord to make the choice of a mate in his life? There's a great chapter on this. Well, I thank you. We better take that off. 